While sponsoring Tiger Woods or Roger Federer is most likely way outside of your budget, athlete sponsorship can be more accessible than you'd think. On this episode, I chat with Andrew Stallings from the Othello Group about how he identifies opportunities, what areas are undervalued, and why the talent story is more important than their Instagram followers. Welcome to Fractal Marketing. My name is Jared Doyle, and this is the podcast for entrepreneurs who want to grow their company through smarter marketing. The goal of this podcast is to provide you with marketing tips, strategies, and insights to enable you to grow your business. You'll hear from fellow entrepreneurs who share their learnings and insights on how they're growing their business. You'll also hear from marketing professionals like we are today who'll give you easy-to-execute marketing advice, and of course, you'll be hearing from me. You might be an accountant, a graphic designer, a recruiter, or a startup founder, but if you're the best-kept secret in the industry, then your business is just not going to grow. Let's get into the episode. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Gerard. I appreciate the time. I'm really looking forward to this chat. I think it follows on really well from the last podcast where we spoke about influencer marketing. So today we're diving deeper into athlete sponsorship and sports, sponsorship marketing, what we're going to do. But before we get into that, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about Othello and what the company does? Yeah, absolutely. So Othello really started as kind of a, an epiphany moment after about four or five beers after a men's league <laughs> hockey game up here where I reside here in Connecticut in the United States. You know, for the longest time, I've worked in a variety of different communication fields in media. I was a producer at Sirius XM NASCAR Radio shortly after my college years. Did a number of freelance writing and journalism projects as well. And then from there, I transitioned over into the agency world where I worked with a lot of major global sports sponsorship agencies like Octagon that sponsors, you know, the likes of Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, Steph Curry, but they also work with some of the biggest brands in the world. So I got some incredible experience as far as really understanding a 360 market marketing and sponsorship model. And then I jumped over to a few other agencies as well, doing freelance consulting work, but then also doing, you know, a lot in the beer industry, believe it or not. I worked very deeply with Anheuser-Busch, Constellation Brands, and really got to see from a global and local perspective how these partnerships work and how these major brands kind of keep those millions of dollars coming in by being very creative and differentiate their asset portfolio. So as I was sitting there one night, I, you know, I was kind of having this really rough week and I said, you know, man, what is this one mark in life? What is the one thing that I can do from an entrepreneur standpoint? You know, is it create a podcast? Is it create an athlete network? You know, what, what can I do? And I took a step back and I realized that luckily through my years, I had some very great connections with professional athletes athletes. The odd thing was that a lot of the athletes that I knew were in very niche categories. So action sports athletes, UFC fighters, motorsports drivers, not your typical core four of sports, which would usually fall under, you know, NHL, hockey, NFL, football, basketball, and also major league baseball. So, you know, I took a look at it and I said, okay, what do they need? And I really reached out to about 35 or 40 athletes that I had connections to. And I just asked them, I sent them a survey monkey survey. And I said, what are your struggles? What are your challenges? What are the things that you're facing day to day? And I think the number one thing that I saw is that these athletes weren't big enough, you know, in the eyes of a lot of these major agencies, they weren't big enough to be given the proper attention. Sure, they could get signed to an agency, but they were ultimately just a number in the bucket at the bottom of the roster. And the beautiful thing is a lot of these athletes, they have so 
much more to them. There's a, a lot more creative story. Their networks are bigger and the consumer audience that are focusing on their sports are different than the very heavily static market of the Super Bowl or the NFL, for example. So beyond that, they were missing just the attention, but also the opportunity to be given kind of this 360 model of management and support. And ultimately, that's where Othello kind of correlated from, which was taking two words, the word athletes and the words opportunities. And ultimately, I just smashed them together and I created Othello. Like all good, all good brands and names, there's, there's some background as to how it came together and, and you've got to tell the story and it's sort of, if it ties into your origin story like it just did then, perfectly. I love that. I, I just want to dive into one specific area. So you spoke about, you know, I say niche, you say niche, it's the same word, right? But different <laughs> niches and, you know, you spoke about even some experience with Michael Phelps and, you know, that sparks in my mind because- you know, I did sort of competitive level swimming here in Australia and in Australia, I almost feel like Australia invented commercial swimming sports stars, right? It didn't really exist. And then all of a sudden, I remember Americans coming over and competing in meets and sort of saying, this is amazing. Like, you know, your swimmers are like rock stars and they're like gods. And I sort of was lucky enough to swim during the 90s and see these superstars just appear. We commercialized swimming because it wasn't you know, swimmers didn't get sponsorship. They didn't make any money. They're all poor. And then all of a sudden, you know, a few brands get behind it. A few swimmers sort of hero themselves. And look, Michael Phelps was lucky, I guess, you know, obviously not lucky in the sense he's a good swimmer, but lucky in the sense that he was a good swimmer at a time when he was able to make any money. And I'm just wondering, just to explore just swimming, what kind of brands did you see jump onto swimming early? And, and why did you see them getting to swimming? Because it, it didn't have money. It wasn't football. It wasn't hockey. It wasn't baseball or, you know, my world cricket or anything like that. So it was, it was a bit, I was going to say it's a bit of a dry sport. But of course, it's the complete opposite. It's a wet sport. But you know what I mean? Like swimmers don't have huge personalities. Like they're underwater the whole time. So what brands did you see jump onto swimming early on? And why did they get behind people like Michael Phelps? You know, that's a really good question. And I'm not even going to try. You'll learn something about me very quickly is I don't try to sell a bag of goods if I'm not an expert into it. I think too many people in, in our industry and world try to speak, you know, very high level to the fact that they're marketing experts, they're sponsorship experts. Swimming is absolutely a very niche sport. And especially with the likes of Tom Dolan, you know, Ryan Lochte and Michael Phelps, you know, kind of in that late 90s, early 2000s era of swimming, there was such an immense focus on it. And we we saw like the variety of different brands like Under Armour and Wheaties that kind of came to the table. I can't speak specifically to the sponsorship deals, you know, with Michael Phelps, for example, as Octagon worked very closely in representing him day to day. I was not privy to those conversations, but I can take a step back and say when I was at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia, one of my communications professors, her name was Jeff Dolan and her son was Tom Dolan, who pretty much set all of the world records that Michael Phelps inevitably broke two or three years later. So I got to learn from one of the most very unique and versatile communications professors who firsthand sat in that 90s like decade and really saw the evolution of marketing go from a sponsorship and athlete standpoint. You know, there were so many questions that we had for her, uh, you know, day in and day out. And even Tom himself, when he came in to speak to my senior seminar class, and the number one thing that we always said was, man, is it just like you're a rock star? You're doing all this. You get to travel the world and to do everything. And I think it goes into a greater topic here, Gerard, is that Olympic athletes in a lot of ways, you know, and we're seeing it firsthand right now as it bridges to a greater conversation of the restrictions that Olympic athletes have. And then also NCAA athletes here. There are 
there and there were rather so many restrictions that handcuffed them from truly working with a lot of the brands that probably could have made a bigger impact on their brands overall outside of the swimming pool or outside of the pitch or playing fields. And I think if you look at it, a perfect example of probably one of the more modern deals that made sense was Michael Phelps you know, being a Maryland boy, born and raised, you know, and at the rise of the time of Under Armour, it was a match made in heaven. Anytime that you can find a Mecca brand that, you know, is pretty much competing with the likes of Nike or Adidas, and they can also grab on to some of the rising athletes, you know, in these very unique categorical sports, it's super interesting. And it's and it's honestly one of the things that, you know, we thrive on kind of ad- identifying here day in and day out with the fellow group is kind of those diamond in the rough partnerships that a lot of different agencies are, are a little hesitant to kind of take the time, take the effort and, you know, sometimes lose money on investing into, you know, diving deep into those relationships to discover. So with swimming particularly, though, you know, the beautiful thing is as Olympics kind of expand and grow more and more, you're going to see that outside of the playing field, the opportunity for these athletes, not just from paid sponsorship deals, but investment opportunities and media opportunities is going to be very, very relevant. And it's going to be very interesting to watch how they grow and evolve. And with all that being said, it's going to be something that, you know, the creativity of of how these assets drive and how these deals drive is what's ultimately going to change the sponsorship landscape over the next decade. And in my mind, I like to think that we're kind of on the cutting edge and cusp of identifying the smaller deals that ultimately will be tomorrow's bigger deals. And I think you're going to see that firsthand in a lot of those Olympic sports and different models as they grow over the next few years. Yeah, I like the idea of you know, betting on, or because it is kind of like betting. I was trying to think of the right word to say, because, you know, if you look at smaller athletes or less well-known athletes and less well-known sports, in some ways, if you bank an athlete early and do it and ink a deal with them when they're sort of undiscovered, unknown, and the sport maybe isn't as popular and you get it right, if I've, if I've read this correctly, it, it's a bit of a game, right? So if I decide, you know, whatever it might be, if I can pick a sport, it might be table tennis. And I go, do you know what? I think table tennis is going to be it. And I ink a 10-year deal or whatever it is and back a whole lot of small sort of unknowns. And then it rises. Do I bank that benefit in profit? Like, you know, if I ink a deal, is this is this what we're talking about here where I'm trying to bet on a deal where I want an athlete and a sport and whatever it happens to be to increase during that sponsorship. And then I get the benefit of that upside. And then conversely, I guess there's also that risk that if I back an athlete and they break a leg or something goes wrong or the sport sort of becomes unpopular, I guess the deal kind of sours. Are there ways to mitigate that, deal with it? Or, or is it a case of it's a form of professional marketing betting on sports where you're trying to work out who's an up and comer and how you're going to back them. Yeah, I mean, so you're spot on. And I think the the term that I often hear, hear from this is that it's the holy grail, right? You know, you always want to try and find that next rising talent within that next rising sport that you can get in with and ride, for lack of a better term, ride ride their coattails or ride with them into the sunset for success. Now, again, there is a reason and it's kind of a good bridge discussion to be said that a lot of these major sports leagues and opportunities, they prevent you and prevent agents from coming into the discussion for a lot of these major athletes in like the NFL, NBA and stuff like that. Like a lot of them can't officially have a sanctioned agent 
until a certain threshold in their career. With the athletes that we're dealing with, I would say 90% of the leagues that we're dealing with and talking to, they don't have players associations. A lot of them don't have teams. A lot of them are independent properties. And it kind of makes the process a little bit easier as far as working on behalf of those athletes and sitting at the table with them to do certain things. But to answer your question, that absolutely is, you know, that's the dream, right? You know, we all want to find, you know, the Venus Williams. We all want to find the Tiger Woods. And we all want to be the one that kind of rises to the top with with them because again that's that's the dream but at the same time when you look at a lot of these different sports markets right now you know you see a lot of agents you know investing their time effort and money going right into these major sports divisions and leagues like the NFL the NBA like i mentioned but very few of them are looking at what's next what's on the rise you know looking at the world surf league you know again surfing's going to be an olympic sport this year for the first time ever why are more agents and people not looking at action sports and surfing in particular right now. Also knowing that the World Surf League is giving female athletes equal payout opportunities as the same as their male athletes, it's few and far between that you're seeing that across the board. To me, surfing has been a category that we've we've dived into pretty heavily in the last six months. You know, but we also work very intimately with the athletes that we have because we want them to not feel like they're a number. So we have one specific World Surf League surfer on the qualifying series, uh, Summer Macedo, who is our female surfer category right now. And we've made that commitment to her and we've said, look, we want to help grow your brand. We want to help you kind of take things to the next level. She's a you know really, really good singer as well. So it's just fun to see like how we can kind of help her build that just from being a really good, well-rounded athlete. And then on the other side of it, we don't even have have a professional male surfer, we have what we call an ultimate waterman and 17-time world champion Zane Schweitzer. This guy, his grandparents pretty much helped innovate, you know, the sport of windsurfing and kite surfing. He was one of the early pioneers of stand-up paddleboarding. Now he's one of the pioneers of hydrofoiling. I mean, he does he's an enigma of water sports and he does all these different things. And the beauty is that he's in his mid-20s. And the ease of selling somebody like that is astonishing to me. I walk into a room to a brand that is very heavily focused on sustainability initiatives and they want someone that's genuine, you know, can really resonate with both an older and more youthful audience and kind of check all these boxes. I just say Zane's name and I put the one pager media kit in front of them and I don't even have to play any of the content. It unfolds right before him. He's a self-published author. He does all these amazing things. So we're looking for athletes that have more of a narrative to them. And again, I think those opportunities and those leagues and those properties are just ones that we're not investing just in the athletes. We're investing into the properties. And we're getting very close and working with a lot of leagues and players associations that we are talking to because we want to be allies for the athletes. We really are trying to position ourselves to say, look, we're not just agents. We're not creative strategists. We're not just marketers. We're well-rounded individuals that can see the different like pipelines and swim lanes that all of us can jump into and find promise and hope with. And I think a lot of people get scared of that because in marketing, as you know, Gerard, so many people want to kind of frame us as, you know, these experts on one thing, whether it's digital strategy or whether it's, you know, digital automation or e-commerce. And to me, I've just never had the attention span to really focus on one thing really good or really well, rather. I've always just been all over the place. And you can probably see it in the way that I talk. I, I really love jumping around and getting excited and identifying so many different categories and opportunities, not just for our athletes, but our brand 
brand partners as well that bring promise and growth and evolution. And ultimately, I don't need to grow in one area. I need to continue to build the house in different categories. It's, you know, like my wife says, she wants a brand new kitchen. And I'm like, all right, that's great. But, you know, you're going to want a new bathroom tomorrow. And she's like, well, yeah, you're probably right. So we share that mentality where we're jumping all over the place and we're thinking about, you know, what's next and what we can build and, and how we just continue to grow it. And I think that's the, the beauty and fascinating part of what we're trying to do here. There's so many nuggets in there that are like tangents I want to take with you. And I'm trying to think, oh, which one do I want to go with first? So I'm, I need to rewind just quickly where you mentioned on women's sport. I look, I'm not an expert in sponsorship in any way, shape or form, but it just strikes me that it is just a huge opportunity that is underpriced right now. If I was saying any blanket statement to someone who's looking to bang sports, I'd be saying like find women athletes, female athletes, because they're underpaid, underrepresented. And and just by sheer parity, you just look and you go, that must just be a goldmine for you looking for the, I guess, the undervalued athletes out there. Am I, am I reading that correctly? Or, you know, it just seems to me like it's just, you know, half of all athletes or, or thereabouts, you know, half the world's female, there's a big chunk that are female athletes. So it just seems to me like if I was going out there trying to get, you know, bang for my buck, I'd be just be going, right, give me all the female athletes first, because that's the easy win. Is that am I reading that the same way as that you are? Yeah, no, you absolutely are. And the women in sports right now are so smart. I think between media opportunities, the influences in sports, the influence even in corporate America right now, there is there's such a movement for for women to take power and control. And to be very honest with you, it's it's astonishing to even get on Twitter every single day. I mean, my favorite platform that I use from a social standpoint is Twitter. And many of my the people that I follow are females in the sports and entertainment industry. And there are times where you can tell that inevitably there's frustration. You know, there's a lot of, you know, still discrimination and disparity and, you know, it's it's very difficult, you know, for them. But at the same time, the ones that can kind of take the negatives and turn it into positives are always so enlightening and inspiring to watch. And that kind of adds fuel to my fire. And it's something that, you know, you can never really say, you know, on social media or even face to face. But even if I can use this platform right now to say it, you know, I have so many, you know, women in my network that, you know, I, I try to tell them every single day, I'm like, what you're doing, what you're saying, and the way that you're building exactly what you're trying to accomplish is so inspiring. And, you know, to your point with women's sports, it also goes into corporate America. These female athletes are looking for more opportunities than just what they're doing on the playing field. They're creating companies, they're investing, they're becoming self-published authors, they're building their own books, you know, they're building art museums. I mean, there are so many things that they're doing to the point where I've seen a lot of guys, you know, that they just sit on the sidelines and they stare. They're like, how'd they get that opportunity? How'd they do that? I've even had an athlete, a male athlete approach me and be like, hey, how did how did that girl get that deal? And how come I didn't get it? I have like 50,000 more followers than them. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> it's about creativity, hustle and passion. And if you bring all of that to the table and you can honestly get someone to just sit down for you for five seconds, your social following doesn't mean shit at the end of the day. And I'm sorry, I don't know if I can cuss on this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, there's a, there's some kind of button I can click on podcasts that say, you know, warning, there's going to be, it's not bad language, it's fine. I'm Australian, so we're known for our swearing. I think for me, what you're saying, there's a real theme coming through here, which is don't get distracted by the sport or the numbers or the followers. Get focus in on the individual, focus in on their story, get someone who's multidimensional. And that, I like the idea of that because in 
researching this morning about, you know, sports stars and what they get paid. And I'm scrolling through the list and I get to like, I think I got to like 64 before I hit Serena Williams. And I was just like, wow, that's, that's nuts. So I go back up the list and I'm looking and there's Roger Federer. And I'm talking about, you know, so comparing tennis stars here. And I started looking at all these tennis stars and they're dull. Like Roger Federer, I mean, he makes a lot of money. He does a lot of sponsorship. But when I watch his ads for, you know, Nespresso or watches or whatever, he's got a pasta ad at the moment, which is just, they're just dull. He doesn't seem to have any personality. And it just feels to me like brands are just focused on top line metric numbers, you know, followers, sports stars, wins, whatever it happens to be. And I like what you're saying, which is, hey, skip over that. Dig down to someone who actually has a personality, has a backstory. They've got multiple sports. They've built businesses because that's a better way to align it. So I'm taking kind of like two key things out of what you've said so far. One being, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, I want to find female sports stars because they're going to be underrepresented. But two, and probably more importantly, find the person with the big story that you can align and the whole story aligns to your brand. And that's going to be a better bet. And that I keep throwing to you and going, am I reading that right? But I want to make sure I understand it right. But that to me seems like two big messages, but that finding an athlete with a story that's not boring and getting past the, like you said, the Instagram followers seems to be key to your strategy and how you, how you're driving your business. Have I got that right as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I keep saying that you're spot on, but you are, you know, and I, I think a lot of these athletes though, the beauty of you, you said Roger Federer, for example, and you're right. In a lot of ways, we look at these tier one athletes and look, God bless them. They can manage a pasta company to shell out millions of dollar for, dollars for a 30-second television ad that maybe took six hours of work total and all an investment of 15 hours of assets that they're going to do, and they're going to get millions of dollars. My challenge that I constantly take to brands is something that we're building out called an athlete recruitment model. And it's saying, look, rather than going and blowing your entire marketing budget and putting somebody's licensing name, image, and brand all over billboards and TV ads, why don't you really try and take a step back and get to know your consumers better? And the best way to do that is through trial and error. And again, as a marketer, you understand that a lot of brands don't want to take time and effort to get it wrong several times before they get it right. But one of the exercises that we actually offer to a lot of brands that we work with is we say, okay, look, tell us who you think your consumer audience is. Like, who is your consumer? What do they like? What do they know? And you'd be so surprised how many honestly don't have that answer. They think they do, right? Like they have their in-house analytical teams and social digital data and all this, but really they don't know because all these numbers and data, it's not black and white anymore. Everything is super, super gray. So what I say to them is, okay, let's take what you know, and let's try and take three athletes from those categories. Let's say your audience really loves boxing. Your audience really loves, let's stay on the fight path. They love UFC. And on top of that, they're just overall outdoors people. So they want an ultra marathon or maybe somebody that can really resonate and tell an authentic story about being outdoors and being healthy and through wellness. Okay, let me get you a list of athletes that both we directly represent, but also that I have direct representation rights with their agents and then also with some of them directly. And I can say, here's a list of three athletes from each of these categories. And then I'm going to give you two other categories that based on our conversations are completely different. So I'm going to give you a female surfer, and then I'm going to give you a female soccer star that's on the rise in the NWSL here in North America. With that being said, I want you to give me three months and let me build a creative campaign and strategy with your team. We are going to test it month over month and do a series of social and digital assets. And we'll invest heavily on maybe one or two of these athletes to do a longer form narrative content series. And let's see what sticks. 
And I'm giving that to them at a fraction of the price that they're going to even probably spend on getting a meeting with Tiger Woods' agent. And through all of that, they're getting raw, real data where they can say, holy crap, like our audience really loved this story that they had with this boxer. We need to go into boxing. Okay, Andrew, Othello Group, how do we do that? And then from there, it just builds into a greater campaign and a greater project. So it's something very different and it's scalable and brands love that conversation because they're not breaking the bank. If it fails, they really aren't spending that much in the grand scheme of it. And their marketing team or higher ups aren't going to kill them if really it's a miss. But to date, we've worked with about 10 brands on this exercise and it's been a home run every single time. Yeah, I wonder how much the marketers who are in charge of this, who default back to like those top line metrics, like you spoke about, it's just out of fear. And it's sort of like ass covering kind of work where they want to be able to point back at at top level numbers to justify why maybe something didn't work. And that, and they feel more comfortable where, as you said, I think there's a, I love the way you phrase it, which is like, it's more gray and just accept the unknown and then just embrace your story around that particular athlete and just go, look, we don't know everything, but what we can do is align our brand perfectly and just believe even trust in it. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for that, you know, is if you can't measure something perfectly, don't try to hold yourself to those metrics and embrace the unknown, but put your best foot forward and don't hide behind partial knowns because you're probably going to make a big mistake. And, you know, you might be a pastor brand that backs Roger Federer or something. <laughs> you kind of, um, there must be an Italian tennis player that they could have backed. But anyway, I, I digress. What I'm keen to do, because we, we spoke a little bit about, you know, like backing a winner, right? You know, so the right sport, the right player. And you mentioned Tiger Woods. Now, you know, there was a point and we all, we all knew it. It was very public where Tiger Woods had his fall from grace. Now, I'm in Australia at the moment. There was is an ex-rugby player called Israel Folau who caused huge in Australia, in rugby, huge news, and he, he made a homophobic tweet, and then rugby fired him, and ASICs dropped him, and and you won't be aware of it, so and, you know you don't want to comment on any of those things because it's super political at the moment. But from a brand point of view, right? So what do you do when you're Nike and you're sponsoring Tiger and it goes down, or in Australia, you're ASICs? I mean, ASICs had Israel Folau, so and they obviously looked at the tweet, they looked at the media, and went that no, you no longer align with our brand. What's the mechanisms and the logic that a brand like ASICs would have got? gone through when they decided to drop you know and Israel Flower was you know he was a wallaby he's a he was a top tier footballing star in Australia and they just like bang dropped him straight away so I'm keen to hear from your side well what's the logic that ASICs use and, and what are the kind of triggers that get baked into these sponsorships that allow someone to get out because you know I can only assume that all sponsorship deals have these kind of parachute clauses and I'm just I'm really keen to hear from your side like how are they baked in what do you do what's the logic before you trigger them because you know I can see you know there's there's sports performances going down but then there's an athlete whose narrative and their story totally changes and they go from being who you like to being completely misaligned with your brand so I'm just wondering if you can give us an industry insight as to what the logic I mean you obviously don't know ASICs but what's the kind of logic they would have applied when going through that process looking to pull the pin so when you're looking at any partnership deal, the one thing that I always challenge any brand or athlete before they put pen to paper on anything is to say, let's go through an exercise of preparing for the worst. And what does that look like? Let's say this athlete dies, knock on wood, as horrible as it sounds. Let's say this athlete kills somebody else. Let's say there's drugs involved, whatever it is, like the worst PR story imaginable. Let's draw it up. And with that being said, Let's close our eyes for a second and maybe step away from this for a day or two and come back 
And how would we both handle it? And it's funny, nine times out of 10, you're not going to get people to go through this exercise and really, you know, see or, you know, kind of adhere to it. And at least with the level of athletes that we're doing it, I would probably say that it's more of a black and white decision that they're just probably going to cut them dependent on investment opportunities. Some of these larger tier contracts with bigger athletes, you know, they give them opportunities and options to invest into the companies as a means to, to get more income and growth year over year. But with the athletes that we're working with, you know, again, given the scale, it might just be something as easy as, you know, nope, you're out or okay, how do we fix this? And I think, you know, when you're looking at partnerships, it goes fundamentally down to the term of the word. You know, when you're defining a partnership, is it just a business exchange? You know, am I really doing something or is my athlete really doing something just for fame, exposure, free product and money? Or is it something that we can take a step back and we're really working towards formulating a genuine relationship here? And I would like to think that a lot of the relationships that we've brought to the table and that we've worked on on behalf of our athletes have been genuine, you know, for the most part. You know, we just got done doing a contract negotiation for one of our surfers' main sponsors. And, you know, I'll be very transparent with you. We took a step back a little bit financially and commitment. But with that being said, we wanted to be working very deeply with the company, like what they stood for, everything that they were about, everything that they were doing. It was so important to my athlete that the money didn't matter at the end of the day. And, you know, that athlete really wanted to kind of help build out, see through and kind of weather the storm a little bit, you know, with that company. So I was given instruction from an agent standpoint and a manager standpoint that, look, even if they come back and pull the plug, see how we can still, you know, work with them in some collaborative opportunity and and build on that. And I think those are the kind of relationships and those are the kind of people that we really try and look at and invest ourselves with. But when you look at like the bigger names, you know, like the Tiger Woods and and his situation specifically that I, I can speak to a little bit, you know, he had about, I think, two or three of his major sponsors that did stand by him, you know, through that whole process of, you know, everything that he went through under the public eye. And you know what? It paid off, you know, in a lot of ways. One of the biggest sports stories that to date, at least, again, I can't speak from an Australian standpoint, but I can say from a North America standpoint, the Tiger Woods comeback story, you know, when he came back and and won again after all those years of battling the injuries and the scrutiny and the up and down. I mean, it is a heroic tale of coming back and facing adversity and really you know, doing so with people that stood by him every step of the way. And it's like a marriage, right? Like, you know, today's society, we don't, we don't want to admit it, but things happen, you know, like lies happen, cheat happens, you know, stuff that we don't want to admit that probably didn't happen back in the 1950s is very much a reality and is almost second nature in how we look at partnerships and relationships today. When you're looking at any relationship, how willing are you to stay committed and to stand by and to work and to fix and show adjustment and plant with those brands, with those athletes, with your partners. And I think that's something that we all need to take an honest look in the mirror with because at the end of the day, ROI, bottom line, dollars in pocket is what we're all working towards. Like in the grander scheme of what we're doing, there is a passion, there is an affinity, there is a real genuine connection to the people that we work with. And those are really the campaigns that separate ourselves and separate everyone else from what's really good marketing to what's absolute genius marketing. And, you know, that's specifically what I think, you know, when you find those kind of connections, I challenge any athlete listening to this, any brand that's looking to to sign even a short-term deal with any athlete, influencer, anything is 
would I stand by this athlete if a tornado, you know, hit my house and it was this person and this person locked in there and it was just us? Or would I flee and run and look for myself? Sometimes it's a gun to the head moment and you really have to think about it from a bit of an extreme and morbid standpoint. But those relationships are the ones that can pay off long term. And I think that specifically with Tiger, for example, you know, that did pay off, you know, for the brands that did stand by him. And I know a lot more brands go through that PR exercise and they have those in-house PR teams that can really go back and forth to to kind of measure the risk in those potential, you know, situations that they can write in those clauses to the contract. But, you know, ultimately my my two cents on it is you know, look at it at, from a very severe standpoint before you put a pen to the paper under any partnership and example of what you do. Look at it as a marriage, even if it's only for a one month or a one-off deal, because ultimately you have to be invested and you want both sides to be fully invested, not just collecting a paycheck. Yeah. The Tiger Wood story, you know, cut through around the whole world, you know, going back in the masters, you know, it was something that got it. And, and in some ways created more personality behind him. You know, I, I was lucky enough to watch follow Tiger around the uh, British open. And the thing about golf is you've got to be in your shell. Like you've got to be in your cocoon. So there's no personality. Like he literally walks from tea to green and doesn't engage with anybody. It's all very, you know, robotic. And then breaking down like that publicly and having created a real human side to him and, you know, to, to localize it, you know, for, in Australia, we had our captain of our cricket team, Steve Smith. Basically, he was kicked out of the off, he was banned from cricket for a year for cheating or at least facilitating cheating on the field. It was a huge scandal in Australia and all cricketing nations were aware of Australia. They basically, one of the players had sandpaper in his pocket and he was altering the ball, right? Mm-hmm. So like, he's just out and out cheating and Steve Smith was the captain. So he's just come back. And then, you know, the greatest thing you can do in cricket in Australia and England is win the Ashes. That's our big cricket competition between the two teams. And he just cornerstoned the Australian team and won the Ashes, which is huge. And in the same way, you look and you go, there's something greater about an athlete's brand if they redeem themselves, they become human, they become fragile. There's now a story we've now lived it through. And and when it went wrong, his brand was rock bottom. Like Like sponsors were leaving him left, right and center, but he's back and you kind of go and he owned it and you go... Actually, if you had have ridden that through and you had locked in the right deals, the integrity of the person and the fortitude of the person and the player and the athlete came through. So, you know, it's an interesting mix, whereas, and, I, and you'll, have, you'll have no idea who Israel Folau is, but, you know, he's on a complete way down. Like, he's just poisonous. You wouldn't want to go anywhere near him as a brand at the moment. And it'll be intriguing to see if that turns around. I, I can't think that it will. But then, you know, I thought the same thing about Steve Smith and Tiger Woods as well. I thought they were gone as well. So, you know, there's a lot to consider. I just... I just want to touch on one thing, which was just, but there is, so in all these deals, there is though a trigger clause for brands. Like they will always have some way to go just pretty much for any reason. Look, there's a clause there that says, hey, I can pull this and, and we're out, we're broken. A bit like a marriage, right? You can, you can, you can nullify a marriage. That is just standard on all clauses, on all contracts and agreements, right? Or, or do some athletes and brands actually enter ones that you know can't be broken for any reason? So you obviously want to try to avoid it, especially from an athlete standpoint. You don't want to give full control or say or power to a brand or partner. But it is very common, especially in the first few rounds of drafts and contracts that a brand is going to want to say and have the power to say that I can take back my money, I can take back my full control, and I can wipe my hands clean for any reason that I deem necessary to do so, or for reasonable clause by held by these standards in this relationship. And I would say nine times out of 10, it's actually very gray. They want it to be just, you know, something where, you know, they can say, look, if we want out, we want out. 
And ultimately, if you're an athlete, you don't want to sign something that says that because then you're walking on eggshells the entire relationship. You're like, oh, man, you know, is my performance, you know, keeping up to par? Is my social media metrics, you know, up to par? You're constantly going through this, you know, emotional like exercise of just anxiety. So anytime that, you know, we look at these deals, you know, we obviously try to do it under very specific reasons if that is going to happen. And usually it's, it, it is typical, you know, the brand will, will get their way with that. And, you know, you can't blame them, you know, when they're the ones usually bringing money to the table. But what I always try and say is that we have to be super hyper specific on what those details and parameters are. And usually it has nothing to do with performance, you know, at least with the athletes that we're working with, the partnerships that we're working at are at a greater capacity. And it usually has to do with legal wrongdoings, parameters and stuff that can diminish or tarnish the brand in question through a partnership deal with this athlete. Right. So I'm just conscious of time and the length of the episode, but I really want to get this one last bit because I'm I'm intrigued by the different ways, particularly with top athletes that they commoditize themselves off in all different parts of what they do. And I'm just keen to get from you, you know, you probably don't have any specific answer. I know you talk more holistically about the sponsorship, but just when you're looking at athletes and you sort of see them, you know, you see logo placements on certain parts of apparel, like F1 drivers are nuts, like they're covered in patches. You see people who wear the particular types of apparel they might have, or they might be use a sports you know, equipment, it might be using their golf clubs, it might be that you're drinking their energy drink, it might be that they're doing, you know, blogs or timeframes or photo shoots that might be, they might even develop personal clothing lines, you know, based around their brand in collaboration. What's the kind of, what are the niches or what are the areas of this kind of athlete sponsorship that you're seeing are really sort of hot right now in terms of like the different ways you can engage with an athlete? I mean, there's so many different ways. I can't even think of them all right now, but are there areas that you find that brands are sort of zeroing in on and saying, actually, what we really want you to do is, you know, use our product. We really want you to do custom content or guest speaking. Is, are there particular things that brands are focusing on at the moment and, and why are they maybe popular? Yeah, I think the the number one thing that you're going to see right now is the term influencer marketing. You know, and I know that the last episode where you sat down with your guests, there was a lengthy conversation and discussion about this, but it it's globally, you know, the number one marketing metric, you know, that is going to be a big spend. I think I saw 1.8 billion dollars globally is probably going to be the spend marketing budget wise you know, in CPG categories alone, you know, for influencer marketing. And, you know, with influencer marketing, I personally hate the term influencer as much as I hate the term expert, because I just think that, you know, how influential is somebody if they're putting up a paid advertisement and they're saying, you know, okay, yeah, you know, hashtag ad, I use this product, you know, because of the amazing smells and chemicals and everything that goes into it to make my body blah, blah, blah. Like there needs to be an authentic connection. And we struggle immensely with going to brands because that's always the low hanging fruit. Brands want to come to us and we want to come to them and they're like, hey, how about, you know, a series of social posts, maybe a giveaway, something that really drives engagements or numbers. And, you know, I work with a a lot of very smart athletes, but I also work with a lot of very smart brand individuals in the social and digital space. And I know very much that these I know the loopholes that can drive engagements, that can drive spikes, that can kind of drive and manipulate social media. And it's inevitable that it is going to get out there and it's going to become more relevant to the community. And when it does, it will be the death of social media marketing because right now, social media is so manipulative. You can completely spin it a hundred different ways to Sunday. And I mean, if I told you that 
I could bring you an athlete with 10,000 followers on Instagram and could could guarantee the same amount of metrics and reach as working with Chris Hemsworth. And I could do it for $300,000 less. You probably would take me up on that deal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it is possible. That is very, very much possible. And that's a scary part is that, you know, you can kind of create your own influential network through social media. You can build your brand to be this facade in a lot of ways. So, you know, that's the low hanging fruit is is social media and influencer marketing. And I'm not saying that it's completely destroyed, but what I'm saying is there are a lot of holes in it already. And a lot of brands think that it's, you know, the gateway in when really it's the easy way in right now. And everyone's on social media, you know, everyone is doing it. And it's, it's, you know, kind of just easy to be a part of the conversation. Now, as you kind of look and transition over, TikTok is, you know, this huge new sensation and wave of social media that I think we all needed. We needed a breath of fresh air from Instagram and Facebook and and Twitter a little bit. And it's been blowing up the last six months to a year, attracting much of a younger consumer audience where Snapchat kind of left off. And a lot of my athletes particularly are having a lot of great success with it. We are working very closely with TikTok and we're also working closely with a lot of brand partners to really understand what the level of creativity and getting some of these brands in early on to do sponsored and promoted content on TikTok looks like. And we're still working through that. We're still trying to, it's it's like double dutch. You know, you're kind of just waiting for your right time to get in and to do it right. But it's a lot of wait and see, you know, from a social media standpoint. You know, all of our athletes are, they're public speakers, they're authors, they have their own merchandise lines, they do tours, they do camps, they do clinics. We look to monetize in a number of different methods and mechanisms that really make sense to them as individuals because merchandise for one athlete may not be merchandise, you know, the same results for another one. And one athlete may be an incredible public speaker, but his audience, his or her audience maybe just doesn't want to hear that individual speak. Like they might just want to see them perform. So you really have to have those tough conversations with talent and really help them kind of garner in and hone in and grasp exactly what it is that they're doing and what they want to grow to do. You know, one of our newest clients that we've taken on in the last two months is Alexa Score, and she's a former professional wakeboarder. She's been battling with a medical disease of, uh, disease of like functioning leukemia over the last few years, you know, several years rather. And, you know, she as, as someone that I've just kind of kept my eye on the last few years from afar, because as I've watched her grow her brand and kind of tell a very unique story and transition... She has now become a sideline reporter with the Minnesota Vikings, which is an NFL team here in the States. She's working with a lot of different outside television networks for own TV features and different productions that she's hosting and putting on. You want to talk about an athlete that's completely embraced and grasped like the evolution model? I mean, talk about somebody that went from being on top from a pro athlete to pretty much being told you can't and probably shouldn't do things in life anymore. And now she's capitalizing and still dealing with these struggles day to day and now is kind of bringing a new forefront to a chapter of her life. These different mechanisms and avenues and embracing that different like story and chapter of what you have going on, it's amazing. And she doesn't have to have hundreds of thousands of followers. Sitting down with her for five minutes is just, you're stuck. It's glue and you don't want to leave. 
And we're finding that, you know, more speaking engagements, more opportunities and more media opportunities are the low hanging fruit. And those are the opportunities where people really want to get to know her more. They want to engage with her more. And her post, when she posts about, you know, specifically what she deals with from a medical situation, people really resonate with that because it's authentic. So you're always looking for the authentic chapters to kind of create and monetize on it as bad as it sounds, but it is fact and it's authentic, rooted growth from who you are as an individual. And that if your life ends tomorrow, that is what you're going to be remembered for. And that's something that, you know, we really try to dive into when we onboard athletes, we say, okay, you are this person on social media, on the field, this is who we know. But beyond that, how do you want to be looked at? What do you really like to do? Do you like cooking? Do you like this? And we really try to uncover that. And we try to bring that to the forefront and communicate it into different avenues and ways. So long ramble short, I mean, now the avenues of monetization are endless. They're going to continue to evolve. I think having social purpose and social good more than ever and having something that you care about is going to be probably a very big focus over the next two years as it's become already from a sustainability initiative and charitable initiative. But I think just giving a shit and caring and just being human, humanized and and humbling marketing really sells. People want that. They don't like fake stuff anymore. So I think the more that you can humanize your brand, the more people will really just want to hang out with you. It's not so much about being the cool girl at the lunch table anymore. It's about being the honest kid that probably just got a B minus on his spelling and just embraced it, said, okay, you know, who wants to go to the diner after? I'm normal, whatever. Like that's just normal. And people really flock to normal human growth and effort of, of who you are as a human and individual. I think that's amazing advice. And and just, just to link back with Chris Hemsworth, I think actually that's what the Hemsworth brothers actually do really well. They're really real people. It's like, it's actually interesting because yeah, a big celebrity, but he's actually, he's actually super real as well. And he sort of, he, he does all those like casual snaps down at these beach house and stuff. So no, I think, look, I think it's fantastic advice. And I, I've definitely taken a couple of key themes out of our conversation here today. If people want to follow you, chat with you, engage with you or Othello, what are the best places to find you online? I think I think you already said Twitter's your your core social hangout. So what's the Twitter handle that people need to be following you on? Yeah. So across the board, all of our social handles are just Othello group, A-T-H-E-L-O group. And you can find me personally on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I usually use the handle A Stallings 88. But, you know, the best thing to do is just send us a DM on any of those platforms, because the one thing that we actually didn't get into is probably my number one secret and tip to marketers right now from cold outreach and new business opportunities is slide into every single person's DM possible. It's the new cold email. And it's incredible how much it has helped us from a company that has almost 400 Instagram followers. And we are getting email contacts and meetings set up from some of the biggest brands in the world from sending an honest, genuine outreach with just a quick excerpt about what we want to talk to them about. So I always welcome DMs, advice, LinkedIn, anything. If you want to tell me how much you hated this interview and how I'm so full of it, I would love to hear that too. <laughs> You'll, they can put that on the social comments when we post it live. So uh, Andrew, look, thank you so much for your time. I had so many more questions I wanted to get into, but I've absolutely loved what we've discussed. And I'll have to, at some point, we'll have to go back and, and dig into some real specifics there, but I'll include links to sort of all the different athletes and brands that you mentioned in the show notes so people can check those out. But look, again, thank you so much for your time today, Andrew. No worries. We'll do it again in April when the World Surf League hits down in Australia and you and I can do this next one with a cold one in hand and watch the sunset at Byron's Bay. <laughs> Sounds perfect. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, man. 
thanks for listening to this week's episode. I hope we were able to provide you with some great marketing ideas that will really help your business. As always, if you'd like to support me and the show, just jump onto iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and rate and review. Those reviews really make a difference and help me reach a broader audience. If you'd like to connect, the best way to find me, of course, is on LinkedIn, following me on social media, or just connecting. And if you've got ideas for future episodes or you're a marketer and you would like to appear in a future episode, just hit me up on LinkedIn as well. I'd be happy to have a chat. Thanks a lot. And I look forward to speaking with you next week.